a step-by-step recovery guide to heal from emotional abuse and build healthy relationships. And so it starts by explaining what gaslighting is and what it isn't, and then how to recognize that and heal from it, and then eventually moving into that last part about building something healthier in your life. That's the gist of it. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a, a particularly insidious form of emotional abuse by trying to make you feel crazy that way so that they can gain control, gain the upper hand by making you doubt yourself. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. My guest today is uh, Dr. Deborah Vidal. She's with Tamar Counseling Services. We're going to talk about what's called the Trauma Recovery Workbook for Teens. It has to do with gaslighting and various things that are involved with the teenage behavior. Dr. Vinal is a doctor of psychology. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist. She's also a certified EMDR and brain spotting practitioner. So we're going to talk about her work today and, uh, and teens. Thanks for coming. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Just a point of clarification, there's actually two books. The first book is about gaslighting and recovery from gaslighting, building healthy relationships. And the second book is the Trauma Recovery Workbook for Teens. And so it doesn't specifically highlight gaslighting. Although if you want a little overview, a little brief dive into the correlation, the overlap between those two topics, just recently interviewed by Scary Mommy for an article about gaslighting with teenagers. So you can always look that up online. But those are actually books that I've put out. Well, we'll go into both. So maybe that's the great way to start is if you would just uh, let's do a quick overview of the gaslighting book and the trauma recovery book, and then we'll hear from there. So yeah, sure. what are both about? Well, the first book is called Gaslighting, a step-by-step recovery guide to heal from emotional abuse and build healthy relationships. And so it starts by explaining what gaslighting is and what it isn't, and then how to recognize that and heal from it and then eventually moving into that last part about building something healthier in your life. I think I know what gaslighting is. I I believe it's uh, telling someone things deliberately to try to make them feel like they're crazy. Yeah, gaslighting. Yeah, that's the gist of it. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a a particularly insidious form of emotional abuse by trying to make you feel crazy that way so that they can gain control, gain the upper hand by making you doubt yourself, which is really separating you from your fundamental sense of self if you can't trust your own instincts, what you have. But it's generally part of experiencing this as they grow up or teens doing this to other teens or both. So the gaslighting book is not directed to teens, although some teenagers have read it and found it very helpful, but it is generally it's a general audience so um sometimes teenagers do find themselves uh experiencing gaslighting with their peers with their parents using that as a form of control but a lot of the majority of my readers have been adults who have reflected on gaslighting patterns they experienced as kids as teens and as adults in interpersonal intimate relationships with their partners sometimes even at work how much does it help someone just to be aware that there is a phenomenon called this? So when they run into it, they leave still like, yeah, it's been really powerful for a lot of people to recognize that's what's going on. You know, I've received a lot of messages saying this changed my life from 
people in relationships, even from people in, in prison have written to me. Because when it's effective, when it really makes you doubt yourself, that keeps you trapped. So it's hard to heal. It's hard to recognize, no, what's going on to me really was problematic. And, um, and when you can name that, then you reclaim your power and you can begin to heal from it. So if you're always doubting, well, you know, I remember this kind of abuse, but my whole family says we were a lovely white picket fence family. And they say, I'm the one with the problem that I must be crazy. Maybe they're right. I don't know who to believe because I've heard it so consistently for so many years. So when you recognize that gaslighting is a phenomenon, that is a thing that happens and you start to look through these checklists and you start to read these descriptions and go, oh, yeah, yep, yep, yep. That is me. That is my experience. That can be extremely validating and freeing. Is it particularly difficult to recover from gaslighting if you experienced it growing up? Or as an adult, is it just as bad? You know, a lot of times people who experience it as an adult have also experienced it as kids and teenagers because it's somewhat normalized. And because people who choose to engage with others through this kind of control look for people who are going to fall, follow along into it. So somebody who's had really healthy um, formative attachment experiences with their family of origin are more likely to see an abusive person and go, eh, red flags. No, thank you. And when your normal is unhealthy, you don't as readily spot red flags and you're more likely to get sucked in by these manipulation tactics. The people that, um, that do gaslighting, do they know the term themselves? Do they, like, how do they learn it, do you think? They just make it up? Is it a common thing that organic people do or do they have to learn it from someone? That's an excellent question. I would say nowadays, probably everybody knows the word. It only really became, it, it, the word has been around for a hundred years, but it only became into popular vernacular in the last five to 10 years. And in fact, last year in 2022, gaslighting was the Merriam-Webster word of the year because it had so many Google searches, it went up like 2000%. So now I feel like everybody's heard of it, but may or may not understand it correctly. And a lot of times it's the, the word is thrown out as an accusation and misused. So maybe yes, but I don't know that people, you know, read a book, figure out how to do it, and then choose to gaslight. I think it's much more likely that they experienced it um, themselves growing up, identified with that form of power, wanted that power, and replicated it in their own relationships. Generally, when people grow up in dysfunctional relationships, they identify um, more with either the perpetrator or the victim and replicate those patterns in their chosen relationships in adulthood. Why is that? Why would someone identify with the perpetrator or well, I guess the victim part makes sense? Why would someone identify with one or the other? It sounds like you're asking why would somebody identify with the perpetrator? There's power in that. And if you've been made to feel small and weak your whole life, perhaps you grew up saying, I am not going to be a victim anymore. But the instead of finding a nice centered, healthy place, you might swing over to the only other thing you know, which is I'm going to be the one in charge. Nobody's going to hurt me anymore. And in bed, you end up hurting others. It sounds like a Batman movie. You know, yeah, Batman, good example, yeah. If I've seen people in my family and other people, um, when they're under intense pressure, and let's say there's multiple siblings, people tend to crack one way or another. Mm -hmm. But that pressure, that intense pressure from gaslighting and other abuses, mm -hmm. used to do that to people. So it makes sense what you're saying. So now that gaslighting is known amongst a lot of people, does that mean it lost its effectiveness or 
does it not matter? It's still a terrible weapon that just people are aware of, but it's used everywhere. I like that thought. I like the idea that maybe it starts to lose effectiveness because if the increase in awareness, if tools like my book can help people understand and recognize it, then perhaps they can extricate themselves from those maladaptive patterns sooner or at the first sign of red flags. That would be the ideal, right? But I think it's used a lot for sure. There's still a lot of it going around. Maybe they'll update it to LED lighting, 21st century here. Any feedback to that particular book that really surprised you or just, you know, made you feel like, oh, thank goodness I, I wrote this thing and put it out there? You know, I've been really humbled and honored by some of the feedback um, I've received. There's about 500 reviews on Amazon alone that, you know, a lot of them just saying this, this saved my life, literally. And letters that have been emailed or written to me, just, I recently received one from somebody who is in a penitentiary saying, you know, I am actually starting to see how this played into my life patterns that led me to where I am today, which I thought was really, really powerful. And hopefully that helps him to break free from it and to make some changes when he has a chance to start his life afresh. So that is really validating to hear that from people, that they found it life-changing, that they found the power from that to re-examine toxic relationships and step away from them. And some people have also said, you know, like, I'm looking at this, I'm wondering, like, am I engaging in these behaviors as well as receiving them? And I think that's so powerful too, when people take it that next step or really work to make sure that they're being healthy. I don't think those people are the kind of like toxic narcissistic gaslighters that are the focus of the book. But we, a lot of people do sometimes engage in a little bit of gaslighting from a defensive posture. And so it's really good to recognize that, to have that humility to say, well, do I ever do this? Because I really don't want to. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. What are some of the defenses people can mount against gaslighting? Well, the first thing is like we've been talking about recognition and awareness. So when you know what it looks like, then you're more able to quickly say, whoa, that's not healthy. I'm not going to accept that. And mentally drawing that line in the sand as far as this is not something I deserve or will put up with. And then the next thing is to create boundaries to identify what you will or will not accept, communicate that verbally along with action points. So a boundary isn't effective or it isn't even really a boundary if you just say, don't do that. But if you say, if you continue to do this thing, then I will. And it's not about threatening, but it's about identifying where your power is and then absolutely following through on that thing, right? So if you're saying, if you continue to yell at me, I am going to get up and leave and I'll come back to the apartment when you are calm 
or something like that. So then you set that boundary. If the boundary isn't respected, you take action and you do it consistently. And if that still doesn't change things or it causes an escalation and things become worse, then you go to your next stage of your plan, right? Then you reconsider as the boundary is not effective, then perhaps a relationship needs more space or termination. Okay. And then the, um, we haven't talked yet about the trauma workbook. So I guess it includes gaslighting, but not really, but does the advice include gaslighting? Is gaslighting just one of the manifestations of abuse that you help people recover from in the trauma workbook or what's its focus? The trauma recovery workbook is more general about trauma. Um, there are some very specific trauma recovery books out there, for example, focusing on sexual abuse, but this one is designed to be more general because there are so many people who have experienced very specific traumas and there just aren't going to be enough books to cover all of those scenarios. So I include a lot of stories and anecdotes that reference different sorts of traumas and I also discuss the many different ways, different forms of trauma and ways that it manifests. For example, I discuss the differences between single incident traumas, which might happen from like an, an accident or an assault, or developmental traumas that can result from ongoing years of abuse, specifically in childhood. Um, over time, chronic traumas like being in a war zone or something like that, where there's constant exposure to being unsafe. Existential trauma, which is what happens when a disaster threatens your life in a serious but indirect way. And also vicarious trauma, which is when you're indirectly exposed to a threat to your safety or, or the, uh, sorry, the life or safety of somebody else. So that might be, for example, if you're a student at school and there was an active shooter on campus, but you never encountered them, you would still experience perhaps vicarious trauma effects. Or if you found out that your best friend was directly in that scenario, then that brush with death can cause vicarious trauma effects. I also talk about some of the main categories where trauma occurs for teenagers, such as physical abuse or assault, sexual abuse, um, childhood abuse, accidents or health crises, such as like having leukemia or something like that, major disasters like a tornado or hurricane or political upheaval. I touch on COVID as far as some of the, there have been a lot of students, a lot of teenagers who did experience traumatic effects from that and others who were more resilient. Um, and they also discuss why that can be different for different people, as well as community or home violence, um, depending where somebody lives. So just a lot of different categories and how those different things can impact you and the many different ways that it does impact somebody. So the physical impacts, the emotional, the mental, the social, behavioral, and even spiritual impacks of trauma. So what kind of toolkit do uh, your teens and people need in 2023? After all the COVID stuff, after, you know, after everything with all this uncertainty going on, how are things changed for people and what kind of tools do they need now versus maybe not uh, five years ago, not 10 years ago? One of the biggest challenges right now in a post-COVID world is finding that social and community connection because of how that's been stripped away. And then even as it's re-emerging, we're, we're recreating the world. So much more is done virtually, which doesn't create the same sense of connection as in-person gatherings are. And I think for a lot of teenagers, while being stuck on phones and that kind of media has always been a big thing, it it just accelerated during the pandemic because it was the only available way to connect when everybody was locked at home. So figuring out how to socially connect again is really key because one of the things that happens with trauma 
is a sense of social isolation, no matter what sort of trauma, not just COVID. Um, if somebody goes through, say, a sexual assault, there's, which tragically happens to one in three girls or women by the time they're at the end of adolescence by about the mid-20s, and one in six boys or young men. So it's really common. And yet, people who go through this trauma and any other ha always end up with this idea of, I'm alone, nobody would understand, I'm different, and there's a sense of isolation. I've worked with dozens of people who have been in mass shootings and did um, some research around mass shooting trauma. And even in a collective trauma situation where you're with dozens or even hundreds of other people, there's still a sense of isolation. So trauma does something that pulls you away from others and finding ways to reconnect is an essential part of healing. And so to your question about how is that different in a post-COVID world, it's a little bit more challenging um, and even more essential as some of those social bounds, uh, binds that were already there have atrophied or broken down. Would you say it's a little more challenging? Doesn't really seem to differentiate it much. Are things very yeah. different or a little different? No, no. I think you just need a little bit of different technique. I would say you're right that it's not different needs. Um, healing from trauma requires the same sorts of things, but there are different challenges. Uh, one of the other big things that's hurt in trauma is a sense of control. And another is a sense of safety, finding safety both within your own body and within the world. And so if the world feels generally less safe now due to increased political unrest, due to more demonstrations and protests, um, and of course, due to viral spread and things like that, there's kind of been an overarching sense of the world isn't quite as safe the last few years. And then if you had a specific acute trauma in that time, being in a world that doesn't feel itself safe can challenge that recovery process. And so that is one of the challenges of healing is finding ways to feel safe in your body, in your home, in your environment, and in your world. Is that the goal of people is to feel safe or is it are other goals more important? So is the, uh, I don't know, is the goal of safety the paramount thing that people need to look for now? Or are there other things that are more important, but you know, safety is maybe a missing element? Yeah, safety is one of the biggest things attacked when somebody experiences trauma. And so reestablishing it is kind of the crux of healing. Additionally, there's many symptoms that trauma causes, often sense of re-experiencing, um, flashbacks and intrusive memories, things like that. And so reprocessing a traumatic incident can lead to a reduction in those symptoms as well. But those so parts of feeling unsafe when you're constantly re-experiencing something that's over and done, learning to accept that it is truly over is part of reestablishing that safety. Oh, uh, last item. I've heard of a concept recently called moral injury. Mm -hmm. So if someone is a traffic court judge or a police officer or a prosecutor or something like that for years, doing the job, I guess to put it bluntly, like screws up their, their morals and their ethics to the point where they, they have trouble living a normal life after that. Have you heard of such a phenomena and do you address that in the book or do you deal with that with patients? Yeah, it's definitely something that I've I've um, worked with. It isn't explicitly addressed in this particular book. But yeah, moral injury happens when we are moral injury happens when we are put in a position where we're forced to repeatedly act against our own internal moral compass. How do you think moral injury inter interplays with trauma? Is it a a hidden facet of it that people need to watch out for? Or is it, um, I don't know, again, how did the two work together, for lack of a better word? 
Well, often moral injury comes up in situations where somebody's forced to do something that isn't really consistent with with the way that we are meant to be. Like to have to kill a person, you know, as like something that happens for, you know, law enforcement or military is often incongruent with sense of humanity, our sense of connection to ourselves and to one another. And so that itself can be very traumatic. Witnessing a death is traumatic. Causing it, therefore, is an even deeper trauma. And so often when there's trauma in general, there is a, a disconnect between thoughts and feelings. And in a moral injury situation, that can be even more greatly exacerbated, where what Ooh. you feel about a situation is one thing, and what you're telling yourself or what you've been told must be done is a very different situation. Well, it may be a... Uh... A minor form of it, it may not, but you know, I noticed during obviously during COVID, uh, you know, with masks, uh, people that worked at a restaurant, you know, were deputized to say to people, "Hey, put them on, but don't do this, or I need to see your passport, or whatever it may be." Do you think that that kind of behavior caused any more like widespread, low-level moral injury amongst certain people having to do all this stuff? I don't know, but I certainly think that was a very difficult position to put people in when there was a lot of hostility from people toward those that were simply doing their jobs and trying to um, keep their jobs and trying to keep some sense of safety in the world. Um, very difficult to be yelled at and assaulted and spit upon. I think that and the sense of, again, coming back to safety that somebody would experience being attacked. You hear stories about people being physically assaulted at the entrance to a Walmart or a spit upon in a grocery store because of enforcing mask mandates and whatnot. That itself can be very traumatizing because you're being told on the one hand that in the initial days, you know, COVID can kill you and and other people who don't think so are directly putting you in danger. So I think that's, um, that aspect certainly could have been a cause of some trauma for some people. Right. Um, so... Uh, both of these books, if you wouldn't mind, you know, as we as we close out, could you restate the titles and tell people where they are? And then um, you know, I want to ask you about where people can find out more. But first, uh, the two books, again, if you could restate them and uh, tell people where you get them. The first book is Gaslighting, a Step-by-Step Recovery Guide to Heal from Emotional Abuse and Build Healthy Relationships. It's by Dr. Deborah Vanal. And the second is the Trauma Recovery Workbook for Teens. Both of these are available, of course, on Amazon and Anywhere that books are sold, if they're not in stock, you can always ask your favorite bookstore to order them and or order you a copy. Pretty much all the, all the online bookstores have them as well. You can, and where can people find out more about your work? Yeah, you can go to my website at drdebravanal.com for more about my books um, or also my, my counseling website at tamarcounseling.com. And you can follow me on Instagram or TikTok at traumatherapydoc as well as... Um, LinkedIn and Facebook and Twitter and all the places, uh, Dr. Deborah Fennell. Okay, very good. Well, that, Dr. Fennell, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, I appreciate all your knowledge. It's very, very interesting, very relevant to today's world. So thank you for being here. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. 
This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.